Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you guys here in Greece. I want to welcome all of our locations as well as our online viewers. Um, we're glad that you're with us as well as we continue our series on the book of James. Uh, if you're new, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as we've been going through this series on the book of James, we were asking this question, how do we live a life full of faith? And I think Pastor Levi did a great job touching on this last week to where we live a life of faith that we don't just claim to believe something up here, but what we claim up here actually lives out with our lives. And so James is really concerned about having the right beliefs, but more than just having the right beliefs, having those beliefs determine our behaviors. And he ended the sermon with this application I thought would be helpful to recap. You remember the three things? Well, let me tell you if you don't, right? Here, here's the three. Read. What's the next one? Stop. And then ask, close. Prayer's not a bad thing, you know, but it's read, stop, ask. At all of our locations, say it with me. Read, stop, ask. We read the Bible, and we don't just read it for information purposes so that we have a, a head full of knowledge, but we take time to stop. And as we take time to stop and meditate, we're asking the question, God, what do you have for me in this? What do you want to say through your word? And I think that's so important to um, keep with us as we go into chapter 2 this morning because today we're going to talk about an issue that has either happened to you or you've done this to another person. When it's happened to you, you didn't like when it happened to you, you felt bad. And when you've done it to another person, more than likely they felt offended as well. In fact, I would go as far as to say this, don't miss this church. This is one of the biggest reasons, one of the things that we're going to talk about today, this is one of the biggest reasons why people have left the church. It's one of the biggest reasons why people in the community want to have nothing to do with, with those churches because you're all a bunch of what? <laughs> wow, they knew it here in Greece, all a bunch of hypocrites. Why? Because we read, we know, but a lot of times our actions don't line up with what we say we claim to believe. What am I talking about? Well, today what James is going to warn us of is this sin called partiality. Partiality. What's that? Favoritism. Anybody ever show favoritism? I've been guilty of that. Have you ever been the victim of favoritism where you feel ignored? You're, you're in a room full of people and those people are just ignoring you to show attention, to cater and to pander towards the important people at the expense of those who seemingly are not as important. And when that happens in the church, God forbid if that were to happen in our church, people would, should and probably you know, would want to leave because that's not a Christ-honoring church. One of the things that we're going to see is that this is not like a, you know, not a, you know, it's, it's not a little deal. This is a huge issue that James is going to warn us of. He, he puts it in the category of sin. So we need to learn what this is and how to overcome it if we're going to be the church that Christ calls us to be. All right, so turn with me to James chapter 2, and this is what he says. He says, my brothers, my, my sisters, kids, people of all ages, listen up, okay? Show no partiality. You remember what I said in week one of this message series? There's 108 uh, verses in the book of James, 59 of which are instruction-based commands. This is one of them. He says, no show no partiality, show no favoritism. Uh, the word there is, uh, means to show uh, no respect to persons. 
literally in the Greek, it's to, to not be a lifter of faces. So you go around in the room and you kind of lift people's faces, which is a way to show favor to someone. But James is pointing out that there's a difference between showing favor to someone and showing favoritism. Do you understand the difference? We want to show favor to a lot of people, but we don't want to do it at the expense of everyone in the room that might not be at our level. He says, don't do that. Don't show favoritism or partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, now stop right there. Get, the, get this image what James is. I think this is so interesting. He's saying, Christians, which most of you, I'm assuming most of you are, don't have the faith in one hand and think that you can show partiality or favoritism in the other. Don't claim to say, God loves me in one hand, but I don't love you, or at least I don't love you as much as I love the other person that seems to do more for me than what you can do. You see how incompatible those two thoughts are? You, you, they literally, in fact, here, here's what I would say. Favoritism and Jesus do not mix. Like it's incomprehensible to have those two in the same sentence. You can't say that you love Jesus but not love the people that Jesus loved. Right? So here's a question. Who, who, do the, who, are, who are the people that Jesus loves? Well, we just finished a series called The Heart of Christ. And what was that series based on, if you remember? There's a verse in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus gives the invitation, an awesome invitation to all of us, where he says, come to me, all, it's an inclusive thing, come to me, all, who labor and are heavy laden. Those who are weak, weary, worn out, this is the invitation for you to come to Jesus, and this is the promise, I will give you Rest. In other words, Jesus is telling us, as we looked at the series in the heart of Christ, that the people that are most qualified to come to Jesus are the people that, that here, catch this, it's the people that you and I, when we get into conversations with, feel the energy suck out of us. Right? You ever get into conversations like that where you're like, oh my goodness, I just want to get out of this conversation. Like, you can literally feel the energy the burden weighing down on you and the energy sucking out of you, right? And you know what Jesus says to those people? Come. Yeah, you can come. And I will give you rest. In fact, you're the people that I care about the most. I want you to come. That's the people that Jesus loves. So often the people that get mistreated in our culture as well as the church. I'll go a little further. Luke chapter verse 18. This is the mission statement of Jesus. This is the, the vision for Jesus' ministry before he gets going. He's in the synagogue and he goes over to the, the bookshelf. He pulls a scroll from the bookshelf and he opens it up to the book of Isaiah and he quotes a prophecy some 700 years before Jesus was born in preparation for what Jesus is going to do. And he says, this is my ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, that's about Jesus, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the who? To the who? See, Jesus has a special posture, a special heart to people that in our society and perhaps in our attitudes 
or often cast aside. Those are the people that Jesus loves very dearly. And then if that weren't enough, there's a great passage, a parable in Luke chapter 14, where Jesus is telling the story, an earthly story, the heavenly meaning. He says, he also said to the man who invited him, so there's this dinner party, that's the setting. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or, this is one of the examples that James is about to give us in the next verse in chapter 2, or rich neighbors. Why not rich neighbors? He gives us the reason. Lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. In other words, there's something inside of us that, na- that has a natural tendency to gravitate towards the people, whether we invite them or we are drawn to them, who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So I'd like to talk to you. I'd like to have you over for dinner because I know in the back of my mind you can do something for me. And I want to get repaid. Jesus says, you can't do that. Don't do that. Here's what you do. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. In other words, the people who from a worldly perspective, are in a different category than you who cannot do anything to benefit your life on a physical level. Those are the people that you invite. Those are the people that you hang around with. Those are the people that you pay attention to and draw into your circle of life. It's hard, church, to hold the faith. I I said it wrong. It's impossible to hold the faith in one hand, to claim faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that he loved you when you least deserved it and least expected it, and then to turn this way and to treat people differently based on what they look like, how they talk, what education they have, how they smell, what views they have, whether you agree on everything, It's incomprehensible. It's just not consistent to say that Jesus loved you when you were hell-bent to do life your own way, but you're not willing to love everybody the way that he loves you. And that's why if if you look, if you have your Bibles, you can look at verse 1 again. You won't see it on the screen, but it says the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. That's what our faith is in. One of the things that James is wanting us to grasp onto is that in the In the presence of the Lord of glory, all ground becomes equal. In fact, if I could say it like this, all ground is equal in the presence of the Lord of glory. Don't miss that. Here's what the world wants us to do, church. The world wants us to have all these different categories for people. Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, black, white. And all the other colors in between. Rich, poor, young, old. How many different categories could our world come up with to to try to divide us apart? But where the world wants us to be divided, Jesus wants us to be united. He said there's neither male nor female, Jew or Greek. He says we're all one because we're all one in Jesus. And when we're all one in Jesus, you treat people all the same. Because in the presence of the Lord of glory, everybody's on equal ground. 
The only one above anyone is the name that is above every name. We're just saying that here at a Greek Greece campus. How great is our God? Not how great is everyone else, but how great is our God? And when you understand that, that changes the whole conversation and where James is going to go in the rest of this, this um, passage. In verse 2 it says this. So he, he says for if. So he's, he's about to give a hypothetical scenario, but this hypothetical scenario represents a real problem. The reason why I highlighted those words for if is because even though he's going to give this hypothetical scenario of which is a real problem in the early church of someone being rich and someone being poor, I do think that we could probably put in there all kinds of different scenarios that we, we face in our culture. It might not be a rich man and a poor man. It could be a different political division. It could be a socioeconomic division. It could be an age division. It could be whatever division. Um, views on certain issues within our culture. You could put that in here because the, the principle of what he's trying to get us to understand is how we treat people who are different than us, who think different than us, who, are, 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 who look different than us, who act different than us. Do you understand what I'm saying? So he says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly. So stop right there. Let's imagine this. Let's pick your favorite athlete, your favorite movie star, your favorite whatever. And it's clear that they're different. They're important. What's the natural tendency that each and every single one of us have? If we're in a conversation over here, it's to stop the conversation, to have our, our attention drawn to whoever walks in. Maybe they've got bling or they've got, you know, just nice clothes or they're surrounded by people with an earpiece. Imagine if that person that you idolize or you look up to comes into our congregation. What do you do? Right? In their culture, it was people who wore rings. I only got one ring, but in their culture, the only, one, the only ring that wouldn't have gold rings on there and some of the, the people that he's talking about would be the middle finger. I'm not sure why the middle finger, but um, all the other rings would have gold rings on them. And not just one, but multiple rings. In fact, I read one commentary that said they would have rings for hire. They would rent rings in order to show how important they were in society. So all that, they would all, all these bling, you know, bling bling on their, on their fingers. I read an article recently, um, not about rings, but about cars, that you can actually rent um, expensive, nice-looking cars for a day to impress people that you probably don't even like. That, you, know. you can rent a Ferrari or a Mercedes-Benz. You can rent all kinds for a day, and they're really, really expensive. But if you really want to impress people, that exists now. It's kind of like Netflix, the old Netflix where you'd kind of get a movie and it'd be sent to you. That's what was going on here. They would have Netflix for gold rings. And they would have all these gold rings on their fingers, and they would enter into the assembly to show import how important they were. So let's say that person, that man, enters the assembly. And then the other person, a poor man, go back, verse 2, in shabby clothes also comes in. So notice this contrast here. you got the important well-to-do and the poor person worshiping together in the same place, which which would have been uncommon because most of the people in the early church were poor. In fact, in that society, it's very different than our society, where I would say the majority of the people in our worship service today are probably middle class. Uh, some of you might feel poor, but in the world's eyes, we're, we're pretty much middle class, a lot of us. In their culture, about 80% of that culture was poor. Probably about 2% that were the, 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 the elite Right? And everybody, there was a small percentage in between. 89% would have been poor. So for someone to come into their assembly who was rich 
would have been a very real temptation to be drawn to that person because they were very, very important. One commentary said that people would have a tendency or temptation to treat them as a trophy for Christ. So this is what happens. Verse 3. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here, so notice the contrast, you sit here, in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. This is what's happening here. In their congregation, they would have had not as many seats as us. So let's say, let's say we had a full house in here today, and let's take away 80% of the chairs, 70% of the chairs. That's what it would have been. We had very little seating, maybe a few seats up here, you know, the, 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 the spit zone. Sorry, girls, so this is where I spit sometimes. But this would have been the very important section, right? We had a few seats up here where the important people could sit, and then maybe a few seats around, around the edge of, of the room. Not very many seats. And we saw someone come in here that was really important, really wealthy, really well-to-do, and we said, why don't you please take the important seat? We said to, you know, maybe the middle class, you take the outer seats. But to the poor people, those people that just look different, we didn't, they just drain us of our energy. We didn't want to have anything to do with. We, we had the audacity to say, why don't, you sit at the, why don't you sit on the floor? In fact, this could literally be translated as, why don't you sit at the, our footstool? Why don't you get out of our sight? We don't want to have anything to do with you. That would be wrong. Wouldn't you agree? That's what James is trying to say in verse 4 says, have you not then made distinctions? So this might not happen in our culture as much, but I think there's other situations where we're more apt to judge based on the wrapper, the package of someone, or the smell of someone, or the first impression of someone. And we make irrational judgments. We make distinctions based on how they look, how they talk, how they act, what education they have. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Distinctions means showing favoritism. Uh, Pastor Levi this past week shared an article with me of our founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. His name is A.B. Simpson. Uh, some of you have heard of that name before. And back before he was in New York City ministering to the immigrants who were coming off the docks, he actually was a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. He had this church just like most of other churches in that day and age. And he cared for the people in the church. But his heart was really trying to create an atmosphere within the church to reach outside the church, to be evangelistic in their community. Back then, buildings were very expensive, and so what he wanted to do, this was his vision, to make this tabernacle, this, build this tabernacle in Louisville, Kentucky, called the Broadway Tabernacle. And he wanted it to be so different so that there were so many seats available, and the building was cheap so that everybody in the community could come in and hear the gospel. Why did he do that? One of the reasons why he did it was because church was actually quite expensive back in the 19th century, and so much so that they would actually have pews for rent. We don't have pews, we have chairs. But imagine if you had to pay for that chair that you were sitting in. In that culture, what would happen was the rich people would choose the best seats. The best seats were the spit zone, right? This is, this is the best seats. And so the rich people would be up here. So rich people up here, the poor people all the way in the back. And in some cases, a lot of churches have balconies. Our Wellsville campus has a balcony, and they would put the very, very poor people to say to them, we don't want to see you, we don't want to look at you, we certainly don't want to smell you, so get out of sight, 
and out of mind. That's how a lot of churches, so even within, just this is like the 1800s, okay? We're not so far removed. In the 1800s, when you went to church, there was a social distinction that is seen in the church. Rich people up front, poor people in the back, really bad people up, up, up in the balcony. And A.B. Simpson said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. We want to create a place where all are welcome, where there's no distinction whatsoever, but because to do so would be evil. And the reason why it would be evil is because, I don't know if you know this or not, but this is breaking one of Jesus' commands. You know what Jesus said, right? He says, judge not, Matthew 7, 1. Matthew 7, 1 says, Jesus says, judge not that you not be judged. So, Here's the warning, if you didn't get it, and if it wasn't heavy enough for you. When you make judgments based on outward, external factors, you have evil thoughts in your mind, and you're disobeying the Lord of glory. You're judging. It goes along with what uh, John's gospel says. Jesus says, judge, do not judge by appearances, in other words, the package, the wrapper, but judge with right judgment, meaning... It's not that the people, believers inside the church, are never to judge. Paul talks about this um, in, in his epistles. We are to judge. The thing that we're to judge is, is truth. We're to judge right and wrong based on what Scripture says. And we're to warn lovingly a brother or sister in Christ so that when they're going away from truth, about to fall off a cliff, we say, hey, I love you enough to speak truth into your life for you to come back into the fold of God and we gently bring them back in. But when it comes to making judgments about who I talk to, who I hang around with, who I show love to, who I welcome into my circle, you can't do that based on outward appearances. And that's one of the reasons why James says it's evil. It's evil for you to judge people based on outworld worldly things because you cannot see what's in the human heart. You remember that passage of scripture from uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. A lot of people know this passage. It says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the, help me out, at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The reason why we're not qualified to judge people is because we can't see inside of people. You're not qualified. You don't have the mind of God to do that. So leave those things to God, and here's what we do. We love everyone. So James says, do not show partiality. He gives a hypothetical scenario that I think represents a real problem within the early church. So when I came to this part of the passage, I thought, hey, it might be good of me to ask our campus pastors, is this a problem at Crosstown? If James is saying, shouldn't do this, and here's a scenario, is this happening in our church? I asked them that two weeks ago. And almost every single example, I don't think everybody got a chance to talk, but almost every single man said, that is not happening by the grace of God. Over and over again, they gave me countless examples of how even in our small groups where people open up their homes, it's not everyone in that home who thinks the same way, who dresses the same way, who has all the same jobs or, or socioeconomic uh, status. None of that. It's the well-to-do, got a nice good job, provide for their family, hanging out and fellowshipping with people who maybe are struggling. It's people who are educated in this, 
who have a higher standard in our society, hanging out with people who are a little bit lowly. And you know what? That's a beautiful picture of the church. It's what it should be. Um, I tell you, as, as a, a pastor, there's been a few times where people, before they come to our church, have sent me an email asking this question. Would we feel welcome? See, there's something inside of them that's like, I, because of what I'm going through, because of what I've been through, because of what I believe, or because of my lifestyle. So they tell me their whole story. At the end of their story, the question is this. Would we feel welcome at your church? And you know what my response is every single time, 100% of the time. You know what my response is? No matter what their story, no matter what their situation, no matter what they believe. You know what my response is? Absolutely. Now, that doesn't mean that I agree with their lifestyle. That doesn't mean that I agree with everything that they've done. But I believe, and we believe, in Jesus. And with Jesus Everyone is welcome. Come to me, all who are weary and laden, and I will give you rest. And we believe that with Jesus, all things are possible. So while you might not be perfect, we believe that when you come in here and meet Jesus, he will change you from the inside out. And you can welcome everyone as a result. And so we can't judge on the outside. Uh, look, what, look what James says here in James chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. If, you, if you're wondering why we shouldn't show partiality to people who can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. If you're wondering why we shouldn't give special attention, more attention, we shouldn't talk more to and be drawn more to people who are well-to-do, who, are in, who can be influenced in our community, who, who have more money or more education at the expense of poor people, that's the reason why. Let me, let me summarize it you're not on the same page with God. In God's kingdom, the poor are actually the VIPs. In God's kingdom, he has chosen the poor. So if God has chosen the poor, if God has chosen the crippled, if God has chosen the blind, if God has chosen the lame, if God has chosen the people who can do nothing for you, but he's chosen them and welcomed into his kingdom, then why can't we also welcome them in Jesus' name? And I love how he says, they're rich in faith. And they're heirs of the kingdom. In other words, listen, when they get the poorest of the poor, the people who, who, who just think different than you, act different than you, you don't naturally want to hang around with, at the end of the day when they're in heaven and you're in heaven, you all got even bank accounts. Everyone's rich. Everyone gets a room in Jesus' home. So why would, why would there be, be distinctions in our, our church? Why should there be distinctions in the world? He says they're, they're heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. And, and then look what it says in verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. So why have you dishonored the poor man? Well, let's go back to the scenario. You, you dishonored the poor man because you chose to give preferential treatment, time, and attention to those who could do for you. To those who are rich to those who are a higher standard in society at the expense of the poor. You, you dishonored the poor. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, verse 7, are, are they not the ones who blasphemy the honorable name by which you were called? In other words, not much has changed. The rich people were taking advantage of the poor. 
Sounds familiar in our society. The rich often take advantage of the poor. In that case, it was in the form of debt. And so what they would do is literally grab them by the collar, drag them off to court, mistreat them, abuse them. That's the way of the world. The way of the world is ruthless. It's ruthless to the poor. The church is to be ruthlessly different. They are to love everyone. They are to love everyone. And so I think here's the big idea that I came away with as I was reading my Bible this week. It's in verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor. Now who are the poor? The poor are the people that Jesus chose and loved. So here's the big idea I want you to leave, leave you with. Don't dishonor those whom God loves. If God says the poor, the outcast, the crippled, the blind, the lame, or the VIPs in his kingdom, <laughs> that, should be, that should be the read, stop, and ask the question, how am I treating those people? In fact, here's what convicted me this week. I should be asking the question, do I even know any of those people? This is one of the easiest passages of Scripture to obey, church. You want to know why? Because it's so easy to have the people in your circle of friends who think like you, act like you, talk like you, look like you, or educated like you. And if you do that, you'll never struggle with this. Because everyone in your church, everyone in your small group, everyone in your friend circle, they'll be the same. And you'll never have to wrestle with this. And so one of the things that God was stirring in me was just like, do I have to wrestle with this? Because if I'm intentionally putting myself in situations where the poor people are, and I'm hoping that the campus pastors and the leadership teams will wrestle with this message in particular and ask the question, how can we make it more difficult to obey this passage of Scripture? How can we make it more difficult for our people so that they're interacting with the poor in our city or in our communities out there and then inviting them to a place of grace where the people who didn't want to participate in any outreach have to wrestle with this passage. That you have to interact with people who are different than you, who don't look like you, who don't act like you. Now we're talking, right? Now you got to wrestle with this. you got to wrestle with this. I think the message of Christianity is simple this, simply this. Those who matter to no one matter a great deal to God. Those who matter to no one matter a great deal to God. And can I remind us, no matter what, no matter what you are, no matter what education you have, no matter what your bank account looks like, can I, can I remind you that you were nothing before Jesus entered into your life? Nothing. Isn't that what Paul says? Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he he says exactly that. He says, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. In other words, you didn't come from a family of even wealth when it it comes to the the families of of our world. Go on. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And then verse 29, it says this, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We were nothing before Christ. 
And when you understand your position before Christ came into your life, and now you've got to hold the faith in one hand, it's much easier to reach out to those who are different than you in the other hand. Does that make sense? I love what uh, William Barclay uh, once said. He said, the gospel of Christ is specially dear to the poor, for in it there is a welcome for the person who has no one to welcome them. And through it, there's a value set on the person whom the world regards as valueless. I think one of the things that James is reminding us of is every single person that you and I interact with is an image bearer of God. And how we treat image bearers of God is very important. And those who are poor, when they come to Christ, they're welcomed into a family that is so different than any other friendship circle or family circle out in the world. When we have those people come into our midst, we're saying to them, you are valuable. You are made in the image of God. And while you are a sinner separated from God, God loves you and welcomed you and adopted you into his family. And we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, in God's kingdom, they're... There is no favorites. How can there be favorites? We're all God's children. I got four kids. Um, Some of them annoy me some days, right? But they're all my favorites. They're all my favorites. It's hard to pick and choose when, when you're a child of God. It doesn't mean that in this scenario, it doesn't mean that we ignore the rich. I think there's a warning here that James is telling us of. It's, I think it's reverse snobbery. Uh, I think that's what William Barclay um, calls it, reverse snobbery, so that what he's saying is when poor people come in, you don't want to ignore wealthy people. You don't want to ignore people who have nice jobs at the expense of poor people. He's saying you, you honor everybody. But he, what he's reminding us of is the poor in our world have so much to gain. They have so much to gain when they receive the gospel, whereas the wealthy people in our world have so much to lose. You want to know why? Countries that are poor are flocking to the gospel because there's so much to gain there. You want to know why the early church grew so rapidly? Because it was predominantly poor. should be a warning to our culture that has grown so accustomed to the, the comforts of riches in our society. We don't need God. We act in a way in which we don't need God. And so James is saying, don't show preference to either. Love Love everybody. Love everybody. Look, look, look what it says in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, royal law means there's no other higher law. It's the law that has authority. According to the scripture, and this is the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where does that come from? Jesus, right? Jesus takes, remember we said can you, by the Pharisees, can you summarize the whole law? And he points to two scriptures. One's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And then he points to another passage in Leviticus 19 where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus actually calls it the royal law. And he takes these two laws in the Old Testament, he puts them together, and he says that's the greatest commandment. It, It actually summarizes the entire law when you do those things. So think about what James is saying here. If you love your neighbor as yourself... This is an active response, church. If you love your neighbor as yourself, will you ever treat people with partiality? If you love your neighbor as yourself, would you ever show favoritism? And the answer is no. You want to know why? Because you're really good at loving yourself. In fact, I was thinking about that. If there's one person today that I'm going to make sure that's fed in my family, you know, it's, you know what it is? Me. I love feeding myself. 
I love when I get a nap. I love me. And so Jesus says, well, if you love you that much and you treat people the way you treat yourself, then you'll be, you'll be golden at this. You're going to do really, really well at this command. But this isn't something that we get to pick and choose of. Notice it doesn't say if, if they think like you, if they talk like you, if they look like you, if they act like you, right? Then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the conditions that we put on God's command. And James is reminding us, you cannot put your own conditions on God's command. It is everybody. Everybody you, you love. And then look what it says in verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. How's that? The reason why that is is because you're convicted by the law's transgressors. So this thing called favoritism is sin, and now he's going to tell us how deep this sin is. In verse 10 it says, whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become guilty of all of it. You ever hear this verse before? Maybe you didn't hear it in this context. You ever hear this verse before? I remember hearing this as a young Christian. I thought, well, how is that possible? And how is that fair? Right? If I fall in one thing, that means I'm a murderer. If I fail in one area that has nothing to do with this other serious sin, that means I've broken all the law and God would say yes. And I never understood that. It was a helpful illustration I once heard. I think it was by John MacArthur. He said, breaking the law in one little thing is like hitting a hammer on a window. Think about that. It only takes one strike, but what happens when you take a hammer to a window? Does like one little clean thing pop out of the window? No. It smashes. It smashes. And the reason why it smashes is because the window is one. God is holy. And when you offend one law of God, you, you essentially say to God, you look at God and say, I, I don't think you know what's best for me. You're offending God. Not just in one area, but in all of it. So we do this even when we show partiality. You say, well, how bad, is it, how bad does this get then? This is James' illustration, verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. When I first read that, I'm thinking, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about favoritism. How in the world did showing favoritism get, it, get lumped into the same category of murdering someone or cheating on your spouse with someone else? By the way, I think one of the reasons why James picks these two is because these two sins, if you were guilty of them, you could be killed by capital punishment. I think one of the reasons what James is saying here is that he wants us to understand how serious it is to say, I believe that God loved me, but I don't have enough time to love you. You've totally missed the gospel. It's not only a sin, it's so serious. It's in the category of these. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. In verse 12, so here's part of the application for today. Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Speak and act. That's how we live our lives. In other words, this is what you're going to do with this message today. God says, show no favoritism, church. What are you to do? Here's what you're to do. You're to speak and to act as, as, as someone who at the end of your life is going to be judged. You're going to be judged based on how you treat other people. In fact, when you do for the least of these, what does Jesus say in Matthew 25? You do for 
me. I truly believe that God will remember the times when we serve the poor. He'll remember it. And he'll call it to mind on the day of judgment, the times that we were intentionally active at serving those who are not like us, look like us, or talk like us, who are not even in the same economic bracket as us, who needed our help. He remembers those times. So live your life in light of that day. And recognize the second thing that he says, it's un- we're under the law of liberty. What's the law of liberty? Liberty is freedom. See, in, in, in the Old Testament, people had to obey God's law, the Bible, because they felt a pressure from external sources that you've got to live up to this, this standard of rules. You think that was very motivating? It's not motivating when someone makes you or forces you to do something, even if you know it's right. But we're not under that law anymore. Jesus says we're under a law of liberty. Liberty gives freedom. Liberty allows us to look at God's rules and God's commands as something that is, a, is from a loving Heavenly Father. It's what Jesus says. He rips out a heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. And when he does that, he writes the law of God in our hearts so that we want to obey God's word. Not because we have to, but because we get to. He totally changes our desires to want to follow him. That's why when we follow God's law and the word, it gives freedom. It's life-giving. It's liberty. It allows us to recognize that God loved us when we least expected it and least deserved it. And so when we have the opportunity to reach out to those people who do not know Jesus, we do so with love and passion because that's what we were before him. One of the things I would love for you to walk away from this, church, uh, from this service and this sermon, having in your hand and in your head, is that you are this sermon. Can you remember that? Everything that we talked about today, you are this sermon. And here's what I mean by that. Today or tomorrow this week, you're going to have the opportunity to interact with people who think different than you, who don't look like you, who are maybe very, very poor, who need your help, and especially they need your help when it comes to knowing the gospel. And it's in that moment you'll have the opportunity to act and to speak as if you truly know this law of liberty if you truly have the freedom that the gospel provides. And when you love them out there and you're the sermon to them out there in the community, you will invite them to the place of grace in this community and every single one of us will be charged with this command to show no favoritism, to love people like Jesus loves them. Do you think that would change our communities if we did that? You think that this would... I, I think I truly believe I can, you know, do some pastor bragging right now. I, re- I really believe our church is doing great at this, corporately. But that doesn't mean that every single person is doing this well individually. The message is you are this sermon. May it be said, church, when people interact with you, that that was one of the most loving people I have ever met. Amen. We invite our worship teams to come forward as we uh, close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this reminder. Uh, I think it's easy to just kind of skip past this passage and to say we're doing well at this. But maybe, God, maybe the reason why we're doing well in our mind is because we haven't really made it all that difficult for us to obey this. 
I think there is a very real tendency, God, if we took some inventory of our lives and in our churches, to come to the conclusion that we've set up church to make it really easy. Make it really easy to love people who are like us, think like us, or from the same background as us. God, I pray over the next year at Crosstown here that, that some outreaches would be put in place, some conversations would be had individually between the people who attend Crosstown here in the community that would cause this church to look different. Where I'd get more and more emails from people to say, are you sure we're welcome? Would we feel welcome? And if they were brave enough to walk into this place, they would know without a shadow of a doubt that the answer is absolutely yes. Because they would feel the love of Jesus Christ. Because we would be people who show no partiality. Thank you, Jesus, for not being partial to us. From from all outward appearances, when you look at our past, maybe even our present, Lord, we're we're just not worthy. We certainly could be judged by a standard that would leave us hopeless. But you look beyond that. And I love how James ends this passage where he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. God, we're thankful that your mercy triumphed over what we rightly deserve. That because of Christ Jesus, we get to stand before you in eternity and be declared pure and forgiven, not judged based off of what we've done, but judged based on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We love you. We worship you now. And it's in your precious name we ask this. Amen.